Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of January 5th, 2015. On this week's show, we will talk about the opening weekend of the NFL playoffs, wherein the Arizona Cardinals put together a historically terrible offensive performance, and the Dallas Cowboys got a rare playoff victory with a bit of referee assistance. We'll also talk about Oregon and Ohio State's victories in the inaugural college football playoff semifinals and whether Alabama and the rest of the SEC were inflated, overrated beneficiaries of pro-Southern bias. SportsCenter anchor Jay Harris will join us to talk about the life and career of his ESPN colleague Stuart Scott, who died of cancer over the weekend at age 49. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll assess J.J. Watt, the most dominant player in football, and a man who, like Chip Hilton, plays for mom and apple pie. In Spanakopita. Joining me in Washington, D.C., Stefan Fatsis. Maybe. We'll get, we'll get to it later. The author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. I think I actually just jumped the gun and wanted to make a Spanakopita joke about you, but I just couldn't wait. Hi, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Uh, with us from New York, it's Mike Pesca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca and a man who eats appropriately ethnic desserts. How are you, Mike? Profiterol and Kugel. <laughs> uh, what are desserts that Mike Pesca eats? Yeah, that, those, those are <laughs> ethnically appropriate desserts. That, that's my new game show, uh, The $64,000 Pyramid, in which the uh, question is revealed before the answer, and then the question is repeated back after the answer is given. Right, right. It's like premise Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we you did great on premise Jeopardy, better <laughs> than great. on real Jeopardy, right, yeah. Mike? Yeah, yeah. Premise Jeopardy. See, the premise of that was I'd win, and I followed through. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're still looking for a spring intern. It's your last chance. Candidate should live in Washington, D.C., and must be available to come in to hang up and listen to HQ on Mondays. 
do some research they could, they could on the They could live weekends. in Anne Arundel County. That's a good point. You know, they could live adjacent. You need to be able to come to Washington, D.C. on Mondays and be available for research on on weekends. Thank you for checking my accuracy, Mike. I uh, promise. If you're interested, email us at hangup at slate.com. Speaking of a premise that may or may not have run its course. Segway. It's time for Whimsy Watch. Is there whimsy in the NFL playoffs, or are they far too serious and important for whimsy? Ask Ed Hockley, who referred on a hot mic to one of his colleagues as Jungle Boy. I think that that was a whimsical moment in these NFL playoffs. Jungle Boy was a uh, replay official named Tom Sifferman, who was nicknamed that by his NFL colleagues because he had once been to a jungle. That was the explanation given by an NFL <laughs> spokesman. <laughs> Hard to argue with that. One becomes an NFL spokesman so as to offer explanations of that ilk. <laughs> right. That's, what, that's why I call you Mike Florida Pesca. <laughs> Mike Rockful Center Pesca. Uh, what's the song? Isn't there a song, Jungle Boy? Like, ah, ooh, it has that part in it. Jungle. It was used for a mouthwash commercial. Are you thinking of The Lion Sleeps Tonight? Mm, I think I'm thinking of Bow Wow Wow's Jungle Boy, but okay. <laughs> you might be thinking of Jungle Boy. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past you to be thinking of the correct song. Ed Hockley also botched the coin toss. That was the kind of referee error that's more whimsical than the referee error we'll discuss in a minute. And then would you describe the Chris Christie, Jerry Jones, Stephen Jones, awkward three-man, third man? What do you call the third man into the hug? As opposed to uh, the third man into the fight. It's, a, it's an automatic game misconduct. <laughs> you call him the next president of the United States. <laughs> it's Tarzan Boy by Baltimore. That's what I was thinking. Jungle Boys anyway. by John Eddy. Yeah, there's a lot of jungle. Yeah. So that was my attempt at NFL whimsy. I think we'll see that whimsy kind of, death of whimsy. depletes, decreases yeah. as the games as, get more important. Right. As Belichick is, commands a quarter of our attention, the whimsy plunges. So maybe we should praise the preseason for being the, you know, font of whimsy that it is rather than the, you know, den of meaninglessness. With meaninglessness, whimsy rises. Um, The top headlines, the non-Jungle Boy headlines from the opening weekend in the NFL playoffs, the Cardinals gained 78 yards. (laughs) It's funny. On one drive? It's funny. In their loss to the Carolina Panthers. Altogether? Altogether. Worst offensive performance ever. And then I fell postseason history. Uh, someone noted on Twitter that maybe Ryan Lindley had a Josh Levine-esque one good practice that led the coach to put him in and think he could be a good quarterback. I think that that's mean. And I would to Ryan Lindley I would never to repeat you? that to, to all parties. Um, poor Ryan Lindley. I feel bad for the guy. Yeah. Uh, Baltimore beat Pittsburgh on the road. Ravens quarterback Joe Flacco now has seven playoff road wins in his career, the most for anyone since 1970. Andrew Luck and the Colts beat the Bengals. Cincinnati now uh, without a playoff win, still without a playoff win since 1991. And in Dallas, the Cowboys came back to beat the Lions. Detroit's own uh, postseason drought now um, continues back to 1992. In that game, uh, Tony Romo threw a late touchdown pass to Terrence Williams, put the Cowboys up four. This immediately following a Detroit drive that stalled after referee Pete Morelli picked up a flag for pass interference after announcing the penalty. Fox's rules analyst Mike Pereira, former head of NFL officials, said on the air that the decision was inexplicable. Um, Morelli explained to a pool of reporters, so I guess it wasn't inexplicable. He at least attempted an explanation. Uh, He said after the game they rescinded the original call because, quote, we got other information from another official from a different angle 
that thought the contact was minimal. Uh, Stefan, what did you think of that? I thought uh, there was whole, contact. I think Michigas. you make a call. You make a call, right? I mean, he said that the, uh, I mean, the the back judge made the call, but then he was overruled by the one of the other referees. They have such intricate names. Line judge? I don't yeah, know I which so. judge. Line judge. Chancellor um, of the Exchequer. I think it was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, wasn't it? There was clearly contact. And what's going to look worse in the NFL? I mean, the, the idea is to get it right. And if in the eyes of the officials that made it right, then, yeah, I guess you reverse the call. But these are judgment calls. These are non-reviewable calls. If um, you talk to somebody who doesn't watch a lot of football, though, isn't one of the most common questions you get, like, why what isn't the hell that is penal- going on? Or no, why isn't that penalty reviewable? Like, they review sure. all this other stuff. Well, so- and, and, and there's the, you know, if there's a takeaway from this, it's that Bill Belichick is right. Belichick argued last year that everything should be reviewable. It's not as if you would give coaches the option of reviewing Every play, you'd still have a couple of uh, of red flags to throw during the game. If you want to spend it on an offside call, spend it on an offside call. You want to spend it on a pass interference call, spend it on a pass interference call. But why not review everything? This It is so NFL to have this Byzantine set of strictures um, that govern when you can do something and when you can't do something based on some you know, subjective inference about the nature of the penalty. It's just bizarre. Well, judgment calls aren't reviewable, except in the many cases they are. That they like, are, isn't right. Every, isn't every spot a judgment call? <laughs> yes. Sure, and you can review yeah. 12 men on the field, the penalty, but you can't review offside for reasons that aren't That really make clear, no sense. Right? No. Well, 12 men's empirical. But I would, funnily enough, the ESPN, oh, the, their version of Mike Pereira, Basically said he thought the referees the were animatronic. Little, Mike yeah, the, the he thought the referees were a little intimidated and not up to the job. And I know that ex jocks always com, always complain about the comportment of the current players, but man, I've never seen a referee ripping into a fellow referee. Now, I haven't seen the stat, but if you look at the uh, the Zeus system or a similar system for giving you the in game percent. I'd have to guess that was like a swing of, I don't know, four or five percent. But you know what? I don't have to guess. Josh, do you have the figure? Yeah, I'm looking. Brian Burke, uh, advanced NFL stats dude, um, says that after picking up the flag, Detroit had a 67 percent win probability. So they still had a two thirds chance to win the game, even though people are acting like that completely ruined their chances. But he notes, had the pass interference penalty been enforced, Detroit would have had a 79% chance Ooh. to win the game. That's a 12 percentage 12%. point in, increase because it puts them into easy field, field goal, goal range. range and gives them a first and 10, you know, good chance of a touchdown there. Which, well, and good chance of burning three, at least three more plays off the clock. I mean, not good chance. They're going to burn at least three more plays off the clock. So does that change your mind about the significance, Pesca? No, I still think it was significant. I think the process was wrong. I think the call was wrong. There wasn't much to it, you know. But you're right. I mean, the thing is that they still, it was still Detroit's game to lose, as maybe some um, strong-jawed football announcer might tell you. Well, and the punt was the obviously the turning point on that drive anyway. The Lions punter shanks it, and it goes 10 yards. Well, and Coach Jim Caldwell decides not to go for it. On fourth on and fourth one, and one in there. Dallas territory. Yeah. And how nice of it is Leon Lett to just always be on the sidelines as a ready example of that which was stupid in the NFL, right? It's as if, uh, I don't know, Runway Corrigan always just showed up whenever there was an aviation disaster. To pick a very current example. So um, the Cowboys did go for it on a fourth down 
on their drive. Well, Romo, they had no choice. Romo they, completed they it to Jason Wynn. They did have a choice. There was more than five minutes to go. The announcers seemed kind of surprised. They shouldn't have been because it was the right call. call but right. it's one that you don't focus on if they make it. And if they if they miss, then people talk about, did he make the right decision? But this is a game that you know will obviously change Dallas fans' perception of their team and of Tony Romo, who now has his second playoff win a player who has had great statistics. He was, you know, possible MVP this year, has been great in the regular season. Um, And this is just an example of a game in which there are so many different ways in which Dallas could have lost without it being Tony Romo's fault. Yep. And the fact that they did get the win, and, you know, a lot of it was because of him, he'll get the credit for it. But if you look at the three other games this weekend, like maybe... 12 different plays would have had to go go differently in each of those games for the outcome to be different. And so it seems plausible to talk about, you know, Joe Flacco in the context of winning another game and like his great performance. But with this one, with Romo, even though it'll have the biggest, you know, playoff clutchness probability added legacy pyramid effect on, on how he's perceived, he probably you know, less than than the other players. You know, you, you can't solely credit this this win to him. Well, I would say that Cam Newton did not have as statistically a good a game, but he was so impressive, maybe because I'm somewhat of a barbarian. The fact he was clearly playing so hurt and he played well. I mean he played he played well enough. I've rarely seen a guy play in that amount of outward pain. Obviously Tony Roma was playing in pain too. I think the quarterbacking, you know, every game that was won was won by a quarterback that played well. And a couple of the games that were lost were played by, you know, Stafford and Roethlisberger played well, but Dalton didn't and poor Ryan Lindley, who is it the defense that causes it? Is it the uh, that causes an offense to discombobulate? I mean, he threw the worst balls I have ever seen. He coming off his hand, it was like the anti-spiral. I do have one trivia question for you guys from that game. Who was the Carolina Panthers' leading receiver? And I will give you a hint. He had one catch, and it wasn't really that long. <laughs> <laughs> Greg Olson? He also has possibly the best name in football, first-last combination. The answer is Fozzie Whitaker. <laughs> Real name? Foswit. <laughs> Foswit Whitaker. That is, I can't believe you'd get rid of Foswit when you have the opportunity to pair it with Whitaker. That's such a, a an able last name. So Ben Rothman's Rothless- name Foswit is his dad wanted to name him Foster Jr. and his mom said, No, let's compromise. Let's take the wit from Whitaker. Foswit <laughs> Whitaker. I love it. He could be on Downton Abbey. <laughs> um Ben Roethlisberger got possibly concussed in that game, as did tight end Heath Miller. They both ended up going back in the game. Warrior mentality. And playing so well when they went back in the game. Yeah, Roethlisberger threw <sighs> An interception. Miller fumbled. Roethlisberger threw an interception. It looked like he was playing catch with someone. Yeah, backyard. Gradkowski was doing great. Completion, completion, incompletion in the receiver's hands in the end zone, and then Roethlisberger comes in. That was wow, the worst throw of the game. Yep. And Adam Kilgore of the Washington Post wrote, "Competitive desperation trumped best medical practices," which seems inarguable. In that case, um, I, I would say let's define the word best even down further. Yeah, that that was not good. Um, and Andrew Luck, I think, might have been the best quarterback of the weekend. The play that he made to 
Dante Moncrief, the one where he was running forward away from pressure and lobbed the ball perfectly. At the line of scrimmage. Yeah, at the line of scrimmage, perfectly into his arms in the corner. His outstretched arms. Of the end zone was fantastic and I think shows all of the qualities that make him the player that he is. He might have even praised the Bengals uh, rushers that were running at him for giving a great effort Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and almost sacking him. Um, He's going to be playing Peyton Manning. Um, This is a great weekend for storylines, the story story line of playoffs. Um, Mm -hmm. And the Ravens will be playing the Patriots. Oh, I was going to interrupt you with the headline from NFL.com. Andrew Luck, colon, I'm playing Broncos, not Peyton Manning. <laughs> oh, I stand corrected. The trash talking has begun. <laughs> and Baltimore is playing at New England for the fourth time since 2009. And we think these games are so important, Stefan. I couldn't tell you anything about how those uh, other three games and did, except that I looked it up just in preparation for the podcast so I could pretend. But I'm not going to mm-hmm. lie to the listeners. Billy Cundiff missed that 32-yard field goal that time. Remember that? I remember that. That was bad. Last year, Flacco I... threw touchdowns to um, someone, and, it was, and, the, and the Ravens <laughs> won. Three second-half <laughs> touchdown passes. I just, it's a storied rivalry. Um, I should remember these things, but I'd have, I have poor recall of the mm-hmm. NFL playoffs. I Oh, wait, I have another headline from NFL.com. Luke Kukli, colon, the intern need to live near D.C., not in D.C. <laughs> wow, they're on you, Josh. <laughs> totally on me, and I deserve it. Um, any, anything else you want to wrap up with, Stefan, or have we wrapped? Uh, I want to add one more thing on the refereeing, on the reviewability of calls. Michael David Smith on Pro Football Talk makes an excellent point, which is that the referees are graded every week based on reviews of every call that they've made on every play. Why shouldn't the same standard apply during the game when it's kind of a little bit more important? Well, they also, I mean, uh, an ex post facto thing that I found convincing was the point that these crews, that they are all together throughout the entire season and then they break them up for the playoffs, when the playoffs right. start and it's just like a bunch of randos together yeah. who've yeah. never worked together that seems like a bad idea (laughs) also did you notice how the announcing crews were the four best because it's logical to have your best crews Mm -hmm. but the nfl doesn't go that way with refereeing there are some early rounds of the playoff crews and then there are late rounds of the playoff crews so everyone gets a chance yeah and we love al michaels and chris collinsworth but they they were at their top form in in euphemizing concussions at the end of that game woozy groggy shake off the cobwebs they had it all all going there they were fuzzy (laughs) Fozwit, Fozzie. Uh, a quick word about our membership program, Slate Plus. You can sign up for $5 a month at slate.com slash hangupplus. That'll get you behind-the-scenes features, exclusive podcasts, extra segments on Hang Up and other shows, as well as one-off experiments like the unedited version of the Culture Gab Fest that got posted last week. Remember the time that the unedited version of Hang Up and Listen got posted for like five minutes before <laughs> we took it down and we all freaked out? They're braver. Yeah, that's They're right. braver than we are. That was for free for people. <laughs> it was. But maybe if you know in advance that the unedited version is going to get posted, that's what I want to know. Did they know that they were going to be unedited? That would create a chilling effect and would cause you to maybe not be as unedited as you would have been if you didn't know you were going to be unedited. These are, these are the facts that I would like to know. But sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus to hear unedited goodness and to get other slate.com goodies 
The first ever college football playoff semifinals were a smash hit for ESPN with Oregon's win over Florida State and Ohio State's upset victory over Alabama now ranking as the two biggest audiences in cable television history, uh, 28.16 and 28.27 million viewers respectively. That was a whole lot more than the 21.68 million viewers ESPN averaged for its first ever NFL playoff game, which was Saturday's Cardinals uh, Panthers contest. That proves that viewers are rational, uh, number one, because the college games were better. Um, but um, the college games were also, you know, they were both good games, but also great storylines and things that, you know, people would want to watch beyond just being the inaugural semifinals. Um, in the Rose Bowl, Oregon and its Heisman winner, Marcus Mariota, beat Florida State and its Heisman winner, Jameis Winston, 59 to 20 snapping uh, the defending national champion Seminoles 29-game winning streak. In the Sugar Bowl, Ohio State held off Alabama 42-35 behind third-string quarterback Cardale Jones, meaning the SEC, which has won seven of the last eight national championships, will be left out of the title game for the first time since 2006. Uh, Mike, what did you think of the first uh, semifinal games? I was for one, and then I was against one. I thought that Jameis Winston's uh, horrible performance, very rarely do you find a guy who has an undefeated season, and that season probably hurt his draft stock, and that would be what Mr. Winston did. I thought that Kirk Herbstreet's comments that the Seminoles quit was big, and probably true, but not the sort of thing you usually say about college players. Maybe we forgot that they're college. And I think in the second game, that was great. And maybe it is the fact that Alabama, we were a little impressed with the name on their uniform. Maybe Ohio State was impressed too. I thought that especially that second game was just so good. The last thing I will say is this. I would like it if the two red teams hadn't played each other. Like it's better to, and right. then you had MSU playing Baylor in, you know, essentially like the next tier of games. Why couldn't you just have taken, let Baylor play? play Ohio State and MSU. I know it would have screwed everything up, but let the two green teams and two red mm-hmm. teams and you mix them up. Well, in the BCS, it was one-fourth um, AP poll, one-fourth coaches, one-fourth computers, one-fourth color wheel. And yeah, mm-hmm. they've, That's right. they've gone away from, from what worked. Big mistake, big mistake. I, I think you made a good point, Mike, in saying that there was a lot of you know forgetting that these were college games. And I think that this gets us one step closer to coming towards you know a true national championship in the sense that other sports crown a national champion like this is getting you know making college football more like other sports but it's also making it more professional and you could watch those games on new year's day and forget for many reasons that these were college games that these were not professional athletes the production value the the way that the players and the games were talked about the quality of the play on the field it just felt like as much of a professional football game, if not more than, for example, Cardinals-Panthers. Well, which is what we want, Josh. We want these to become more professional because that will put more pressure on the powers that run these institutions to professionalize them in a way that they deserve to be, meaning that the players should get something So increase for the cognitive dissonance. Correct. Increase the cognitive di- dissonance to get to the desired result. I mean, the thing that's going to make the final acutely professional is that is where the game is being played it's being played in texas stadium there's gonna be a hundred thousand people watching that there's not a college venue um and the starting quarterback of one of the teams is the guy who famously tweeted uh, cardale jones about ohio state i didn't come here to play school so 
that guy is is He's familiar familiar with the uh, with the state of college sports. That's one of those tweets that actually confirms itself. <laughs> it is very true. Um, he actually is playing school, though. <laughs> so in college football, where there are the fewest data points of any sport that we follow closely, that means that kind of paradoxically, every individual result. When the, when the n is smaller, each uh, you know individual result is given more weight. And so, after the top five teams in the SEC West, which was billed by many, including some on this podcast, as the greatest, toughest division in college football history, the top five teams in that division go zero and five. Questions are raised, I think, sensibly about whether people said that stuff about the SEC due to bias about you know because the SEC Network, ESPN was pumping them up. They have this financial arrangement due to the fact that Alabama is a very famous team and Nick Saban is the most famous, most highly paid coach. Um, so, Mike, do you think that these results, you know, the fact that N is now increased by one, we have one more game. Do we now have evidence that the SEC was overrated this year? Um, and if so, do you think that that was due to bias or is it because we just hadn't seen enough games yeah well on uh, and then of course the way we determine if a conference is overrated is you know the games that the teams play and the teams are playing each other so once you get a ball rolling on an assumption and they're all just beating each other up it's hard to undo that assumption yeah but i agree with that end point and this is the same thing with uh oh tcu played so well in their game maybe they should have been in the playoffs or hey baylor's on its way to winning oh look at this baylor has is up by six and has the ball on the five. Oh wait a minute there was an offensive holding call on that play now they're at the 40. Now they've taken a sack. Now they're at a field goal range. Now MSU has won. I guess that means the conclusion was wrong. I mean, that just kind of shows how ridiculous it is. The basic thing is that there's so there are so few data points, as you say. I do think the SEC West, I guess they, they were literally overrated, right? They You can't argue that they weren't overrated. Now that the accurate ratings that take into account empirical evidence are out, you'd have to say that semi-division was less good than it was a few weeks ago from what we know. How could you gainsay that? But it doesn't mean it's still not a great division. I just don't understand. I just don't know how you could have rated the teams any differently, given the fact that the SEC West teams didn't lose, that like Ole Miss, for example, beats Boise State in non-conference. Boise State then goes on to like went beat Arizona in the Fiesta Bowl. Ole Miss gets destroyed by TCU. But, you know, after the first game of the season, what conclusion can you come to other than the fact that Ole Miss is better than Boise State? You know, Auburn beats Kansas State on the road. LSU beats Wisconsin in a game they probably should have lost. But right. they did. But they didn't. Um, and, and a team that's four and four in that conference. Right. Auburn takes an excellent Wisconsin team to overtime. That's not proof that they're bad. That's confirmation that they're good. And if you look at the computer um, rankings composite, there's a guy named David Wilson from Wisconsin, he's put together something he calls the super list. It's nine different computer ranking systems. So if you want to talk about bias in any particular one, or you want to talk about ESPN, people pumping up different teams, like this is this is not bias. This is nine computer rankings in aggregate, no preseason hype or expectations or anything. Before the bowl game started, the top 20 of that super list, eight SEC teams, Three Big 12, three Big 10, four Pac-12, two ACC, four of the top 10 are the SEC. And if you 
you know, if you look at that, it's hard to argue that given the information that we had before the bowl games, that people, you know, commentators or whoever were giving the SEC more credit than it probably should have gotten at that point. Only one SEC team got into the playoff, Alabama. And in the playoff era, I think it's going to be less likely than it was in the past, seven of the past eight years, that the SEC team will win a title. There'll be more chances for somebody to knock them off. And so in the end, it seems like it all came out in the wash. I don't see what particular damage was done by people talking about the SEC a lot. It just might have been annoying to Oregon fans or, or whoever else. Well, I think but th- this is why the playoff system is a benefit in sports, is that we get away from just talking about who we think are the best teams and we get to find out. You know, it's still obviously limited and it's still there's going to be some subjectivity, or a lot of subjectivity in determining who gets into this. But ultimately, it will lead to a winnowing of the, this kind of argument and, and a winnowing of the criticism. And there's more of a chance for the SEC to get its comeuppance, which I think a lot of people sure. want to see. And in the national... Well, Oh, I was going to say, speaking of comeuppance, I had an odd relationship, a different relationship that I usually have with big time college football, which is I essentially root for chaos because I hated the system. But now with a playoff, I wanted it to get big ratings because I wanted to prove that all those people who all long said that a playoff wouldn't work. And maybe I'm imagining them. I don't know. Too many people said, yeah, it's mm-hmm. not going to get good ratings. But at least that showed that it's a good system. And now as I look, people talk about the number of teams. Another argument that I think this is blown out of the water is the argument about how it interferes with studies. I don't see how four teams, and if you expand it to eight, I mean, kids are on campus all the time or going to Guatemala building houses or, you know, the debate teams. <laughs> Play the games campus. in Guatemala in a stadium that the players construct yeah, themselves. That's right. A lot of, there's a lot of extracurricular <laughs> activity going on at, at break. So I see most of the arguments against a playoff being blown up. And the thing- Just an extracurricular would, activity. I would like to talk about is there was what 11 days between the semifinal and the final. And before the semifinal, there was when did, when did Alabama, when was the iron bowl? It was like, Oh, the sec championship game. You mean? Yeah. Okay. When was the sec championship game? Like December 5th, 6th, 7th, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So there was almost a A month. month. You could, you could so easily slate in another round of games. I don't see, uh, I don't see how that's not going to happen. I think it will happen, but I do, as we discussed previously, then we're getting into 14 and 15 and 16 No, we games. don't have to be. Not every number is getting into a bigger number. Well, right. We don't. <laughs> that is my point. We have to get to a lesser number. So find a way to persuade these institutions and these university presidents to sacrifice a game out of the regular season. Keep it's, it reasonable while we make it professional to persuade everybody that spending working 40 hours a week as a football player and generating billions of dollars in revenue is deserving of some sort of compensation. Well, it's, it's interesting also how history and, and the sport and the size of the playoff system dictates kind of broad rooting interests. Like in baseball, we often talk about, oh, is it fair that the Royals make it to the World Series? They only won 87 games or whatever it was during the regular season. And the Port Angels, they don't get the chance, even though they proved during the regular season. But in the college football playoff, it seems like People root for the team that would have been left out in the BCS. I read a lot of like Oregon wouldn't have made it into the it would have been Florida State and Alabama. And we wouldn't have known that Oregon. So people root for the teams that would have not made it. And now with TCU probably being um, the first team out, that's going to be a reason to go to eight. And people are always going to want the team 
that was like the least <laughs> likely to be there as right. as a grounds to expand it even more. Yeah, always root for the martyr. Some people like the ducks, some people like the buckeyes, but really we all like the grievance nursers. We do. Go and grievance nursers. I think that Mark Helfrich, the um Oregon coach, is a great example. I don't know if you guys can think of another one where Chip Kelly is famous for kind of taking that program where it went, Phil, Chip Kelly and Phil Knight. And Helfrich kind of took over, is seen as a caretaker of the program, runs the same offense, the same hurry up. The Very same. different personality from Chip Kelly. Very different personality, pretty low-key dude. And yet he seems to be doing it, if not better, at least as well as plus more opportunity than Chip Kelly does. But the guy is um, not is seemingly not getting... The credit. He's like uh, Les Miles winning with Nick Saban's players like 10 years after Nick Saban left. But he does a fantastic job with that team. Mariota is the best quarterback I think they've ever had to run that system. And I, that's my rooting interest in the championship game is because I see Oregon as playing in this pretty enlightened way in a way that's counter to conventional wisdom. And I feel like they've been on the cusp for so long and that they deserve the kind of validation that Right, because we love to see weirdness validated, right? We We do. We love to see the the outlier validated. It's a larger scale of the Boise State validation when they beat Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl, you know, that that time with Chris Peterson. Okay, so the grievance nursers and the outlier validators. That's who's playing. Okay, good. Isn't that a variation on that that Apple commercial? The grievance nursers, (laughs) the crazy ones, the outliers, Mark Helfrich. Very next play... Collins gets silly nutty with Ron Dixon. Eight yards. Dixon, talk about nimble barista cup. Oh, just getting both feet in. 14-zip G-man. Third quarter, 17-0 Giants. Uh-oh. Michael Strand about to put the beat down, clock down on Mark Grinnell. Yeah, dog, we know that. If you're a sports fan, you know we were just listening to Stuart Scott. That was via an old piece from the public radio show on the media, Sound of the ESPN anchor reading highlights way back in 2002. Uh, That was nine years after he joined the network, 13 years before he passed away of cancer this weekend at age 49. In more than 20 years with ESPN, Scott became one of the network's most distinctive voices, perhaps the most distinctive. Tributes from his colleagues, the athletes he covered, and ESPN viewers have noted his kindness his courage in dealing with his illness and the influence he's had on a generation of broadcasters, particularly black men and women who saw him as a trailblazer, a person who demonstrated that being yourself could get you on sports television's biggest stage. We're now joined by Jay Harris, Scott's longtime colleague at ESPN and a Sports Center host himself. Jay, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. I get to talk about my friend, you know? Yeah, and one of the things that really come through for me and hearing all these tributes to Stuart Scott is the relationship that we have as viewers with the people that are on our television sets. And there's nobody, I think, in the last couple decades that has a more intimate relationship with viewers than the Sports Center host. And among those, I think Stuart Scott was maybe the best at cultivating the feeling that you were his friend, that you knew him. I mean, I've never spoken to you before, Jay, but I feel like I know you a little <laughs> bit because I've watched you hundreds of times on television. And Stuart was just so great at making you feel that connection. Can you explain how he did that? I, I, he had the gift of being authentically him. If you, if you saw Stuart on television, that was Stuart. 
you were on a golf course with Stewart, that was Stewart. Uh, if you were around Stewart and he was with his daughters, he was Stewart. What you saw is what you got. He had the courage to be himself, to remain himself from the beginning. When some folks, you know, didn't really take to his style, he said, no, this is me, this is who I am, this is not necessarily style, this is, this is me. That's why people feel like they know him. It's the first time I saw him, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the television, I'm like, hey, that guy's saying the same things that I say, or that my buddies say, but he owes me money because he's getting paid for it, and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> So he's that comfortable. He was that comfortable. You know, and, and that's what's interesting to me in, in all of the uh, re- remembrances of Stewart is that, you know, you could certainly argue that you guys are, you know, with all due respect, your catchphrase sportscasters. But what Stewart really did was kind of subterfuge. He made black viewers, kids particularly, feel welcome on a big sports network, and he made white kids accept black culture without thinking about it. You know, teenagers start saying booyah because Stuart Scott is saying it, and it becomes a part of our culture. True. Uh, I had a talk with a friend of mine uh, yesterday, and she's white, and she said, you, you can't claim him, though. We liked him, too. <laughs> 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 I, I hear you on the, the catchphrase sportscaster thing, but Stuart also did something that kind of flies along under the radar. You heard it, but it wasn't as in your face. He was a technician. Right. The, the consummate journalist, every time he opened his mouth, every time he did a highlight, yes, he had the catchphrase, but he also had the pertinent or relevant statistic to back up whatever he was talking about to enhance his story of the game. Well, and you also get a sense from reading uh, and listening to people talk about Stewart that, you know, just how hard it is to do what you guys do, to do it carefully and to do it thoroughly. And it's writing. It's not just making stuff up. Yeah, that's true. That's it. What's the line, do you think, between the one criticism that was leveled at him by the sports establishment, chumminess with the athletes, and uh, I think a good counter-argument, which would be cultural fluency. So what's the line between giving an athlete a fist bump after an interview and not doing that? Why, why was it okay when Stewart did it? That's a great question. Um, I, I think it's a case-by-case basis. I did news for 14 years before I came here. Was I not friendly with some of my interview subjects? Would I not sit down with, um, I was in Pittsburgh, would I not sit down with the president of the school board and shake his hand or give him a fist bump after I interviewed him because, you know, we had talked for several times? Probably. I just wasn't on national TV, and it wasn't sports, so people didn't go, hey, that's not credible journalistically. I mean, everybody does it, which is why that kind of criticism, I, I laugh at a little bit. Everyone does it. Everyone has a relationship with someone they're talking about or someone they're talking to, whether it be a strong relationship or, hey, I just met you. Everyone's cordial. Um, You said in the ESPN obituary, Jay, that he brought in the barbershop, the church, R&B, soul music, soul, period, um, to ESPN. And you guys are around the same age, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But you also said that he inspired you, and this is something that a lot of different people have said, you know, athletes. Ryan Clark wrote on the MMQB that Stuart Scott was his idol. It's sort of the inversion of the usual relationship that people think that we have as sports writers and sportscasters, that we idolize the athletes. You hear so many athletes saying that they idolized him. Can you just talk about personally what you got 
from him and and how he influenced you and you know how he helped bring you to where you are now sure uh, and actually it was all embodied really uh, in a story from this past summer I filled in for him uh, at the National Association of Black Journalists Sports Mentor Task Force breakfast he was supposed to be the keynote speaker uh, he could not make it because of health reasons and uh, I was asked to fill in so I sent him a text and I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm filling in for you. Uh, what, what would you like me to say? Anything special? And his first line back to me was a polite cursing out, saying I was no bleeping fill-in, and tell him I wish I was there and just go do you. Do you has followed me since I read it in that text message. And I, it's something that you try and do before, but to have the courage to do you, to really let it go and put yourself out there and just be naked and raw and go, you know, here I am, accept me or not, this is how I'm doing this. It was one of the best speeches I ever made because of those two words. So that embodies Stuart to me, the who I wanted to be, the, the courage that I wanted to have to do me because he did himself all the time. Here, let me play a clip from uh, the aforementioned 2002 on the media piece. Here is the uh, reporter. It's Leon Winter, the late Leon Winter's great reporter, wrote about business and race for the Washington Post for a number of years. And um, he was there in Bristol as Stuart was doing his job. And Stuart wanted to play some answering machine messages that he got. I think we have that clip. Scott's difference from expectations, white and black, have made him a standout, even among ESPN's quirky anchor core. It's also made him a target. I got this the other day. To erase this message, press 7. Just to hear. You're such a douchebag, man. Why don't you stop being a nigger on the air, okay, brother? Yeah, 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 yeah. West Coast calling you out, man. You're a punk. Later. I had a black guy call me one time. He, he said, you know, he didn't appreciate, you know, all you're trying to do is drag our race down and using, you know, improper language and... You know, talking street slang, you know, you know, we're better than that. All right, man, we're better than that. That's not going to make me change what I do and how I do it. So for all the question is for all his success and being named, you know, the prime host of uh, the NBA show and just having a status within ESPN. Did that criticism, did that ever subside? Did that keep driving him? What was his reaction to, you know, even the most vile of criticism? I'm not even going to call it criticism, kind of just hate speech like that. Man, you, you can't control ignorant, can you? <laughs> um, listening to that, I was just, I was kind of smiling. I'll just speak for myself. I had I have a couple of those voicemail messages. I didn't save mine. I have a, a nice long letter that I saved that's somewhere in my desk. It's, it's part of the business. And you, you get those things and they motivate you. You just realize who's out there, and you realize that everybody doesn't like you, but you realize that, you know, that's on them. That dude on the phone has the problem. Stewart doesn't have the problem. And it's funny how most of these folks that want to come at you with language like that remain anonymous. I mean, dude, if you have something to say to me, we can talk about it. What's your name? You know, where are you? I'll, give me a number. I'll call you back. Let's chat. Don't be anonymous. The dude on the phone was the punk. I mean, really. So you get that, and you kind of listen to it, and you kind of just brush it off, and you go about your business. On Slate today, uh, Jeremy Stahl has a piece assessing Stewart's career, and he quotes 
from uh, James Andrew Miller's book, Those Guys Have All the Fun, The Oral History of ESPN. And he quotes a former ESPN executive, Keith Klinkscales, who's black, saying about Stewart's delivery on SportsCenter in the early years in the 1990s that, quote, his willingness to stick with it despite getting complaints and the producers letting him stick with it is one of the great cultural moments that African-American culture has ever had. And he prefaces that by saying, I don't want to commit hyperbole here. Do you agree with that? I mean, I think, and, and that sort of backs up, you know, when you get a, a voicemail like that, it does help put into perspective exactly what Stewart was trying to do. True. I agree with what Keith said, especially the folks here who uh, let Stewart be Stewart. That was just brilliance on, on, on their part. The fact that they hired him in the first place and then let him be him. Well, Jay, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts. And I think the best testament to Stewart's life is just, um, you know, the way that people like you, his colleagues, his friends, his family talk about him. And you just, you know, get a very clear sense that this was someone who was not only great at his job, but just treated people very well, no matter who they were, and is kind of being appropriately revered for that. And so it was great to be able to hear it from you. He was my dude on TV and off. My pleasure. Thanks, Jay. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, it is now time for After Balls. And what could they be other than booyahs? Sometimes it's just right to go with the obvious choice. Um, There's a piece coming up on Slate by Ben Zimmer about the word. Uh, Stefan, what can you tell us about booyah? Ben, who's a lexicographer, traces the etymological history of booyah, and he traces it back to the West Coast rap scene. It was an onomatopoeic imitation of gunfire that got extended into a signal of surprise, aggressive strength, or delight, Ben writes, and he quotes lyrics. He quotes some uh, articles a, from the LA Times. What's a lyric that he quotes? He quotes Tone Loke's 1989 album, Loked After Dark. My rhyme is like booyah, but it's not dope, and I'm the type of MC to make all lose hope. It's pretty much what it sounds like on the album, too. And that is the Stefan Fatsis quotes uh, rap lyrics portion of the show. Uh, Mike Pesca. <laughs> It'll be a new whimsical feature. Mike, what's your booyah? All right. So I was watching St. John's play Butler. And uh, there is a center, I think his listed position is center, but he's also an outside threat for Butler. And the player's name was uh, Travis. Seems like they were saying Travis. Now, I was kind of shocked when I saw how Travis, Andrew Travis, spells his name. I'll give you not just the Fox take on Travis. Here's a couple other sources. This is not Fox, but Cox. Here, listen to this. Listen to uh, Adam Finkelstein, who's doing the interview. Spelled as Finkelstein should be spelled. Okay, we're here with Rhode Island native Andrew Schrabus, who's currently a junior at Cushing Academy. Okay, you hear that, guys? Mm-hmm. Sounded like Schrabus. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. Now let me. I got another take on that. This is from when Butler beat UT Martin. Look who's going for three. Carlo off the screen gives it back to Schrabus. Another three. Schrabus has knocked down his last two. You get that? Schrabus. Schrabus. Okay. Now please take pens and paper out. Now, I'm going to each give you a chance to spell the surname Travis. Josh, <laughs> you may wish to go first. Wait. Uh, so we heard Shrabis. Yeah. But you're saying Travis. That's what I heard. That's how I heard it to my ear. You could go with, I played you two pronunciations where it was more like tra- Shrabis. Go ahead. All right. Knowing what you know, that's <laughs> the amount of uh, information you get. 
You may spell trap. My fingers are hovering above my keyboard. Not. I've not already typed. typed. I've already typed. Can we okay, let Stefan? Let Stefan go first, and then I'll go guess. Ahead, I'm going to go with S Z C R A B I S C Z. Okay, say it again, please. S Z C R yeah A B I S C Z. Okay, and Josh, <laughs> <laughs> you go ahead. Um, I'm just going to go with the obviously wrong answer just to allow yep. listeners to feel safe and coming up with their own wrong answers. I'm just going to go with S-C-H-R-A-B-I-S. Okay. So, Stefan, after you got past the minefield that is the first syllable of Shrabbis, you're pretty good. Thank you. In that it does end in an S-C-Z. Yes. And it has a B. And, and, the, and the letter before the B is an A. We all got that. In fact, <laughs> yes. even I, listening to this guy named Travis, thought that his name had an A-B in there somewhere. <laughs> but Andrew Travis's real name, real surname is spelled C-H-R-A-B-A-S-C-Z. Now, as Stefan, as you... Compute- I was kind of right at parts of that. I got C-H-R-A-B uh, uh, something. I got too cute with the S-C-C, the, the, the Wally no, Serbiak. No, S-C-C was right. S-C-C was no, right. No, no, at the, the beginning. End. I got yeah, too cute with the S-C-C. I got the Wally Serbiak that I went with. So as you, Stefan, calculate the Scrabble score of Travis, I will tell you an interesting thing about Travis. He was mentored by Chris Herron. Now, as you do the math, you might be saying to yourself, wait, Chris Herron, who John Hawk did a documentary on, who was a great player for Boston College, a good player for Boston College, drug problem, Fresno State, more of a drug problem. Now he's mentoring. But wait a minute, this kid's a college sophomore. Wouldn't Chris Herron be in the throes of his drug addiction? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. He was five months clean when he approached this kid from Rhode Island and said, you know, you're the best kid on your team. You're 6'10". You could shoot. I'd like to tutor you. I'd like to coach you for free. And so his dad, Carl, who used to play basketball at Penn State, said, no, stay away from my son. (laughs) But still, still, it seemed as Travis uh, continued and progressed, he seemed to be earnest. He seemed to really want it. They kind of took a chance on Heron. Heron took a chance on him. And though no, now no one could spell Andrew Travis's name, he's doing pretty well on the Division One level. That's Andrew Travis, C-H-R-A-B-A-S-C-Z. Worth how much in Scrabble? 302 points through either A-B or B-A or A-S on a triple-triple. There you go. 28 times 9, 252 plus 50 for the bingo, 302. Boom. Bingo. Booyah bingo. Stefan, what is your booyah? If, like me, you can recite from memory much of the script of Barry Levinson's film Diner, then you were simultaneously intrigued and concerned by reports that Levinson had teamed with Sheryl Crow to create a musical version of his 1982 masterpiece. My reaction was a little bit Fenwick's in the manger, a little bit. You ever get the feeling there's something going on that we don't know about? As our friend Scott Price argued in a fantastic story in Vanity Fair in 2012, Diner did more to shape modern comedic sensibilities than maybe anything. It was a movie about a bunch of 20-something guys in Baltimore talking through and struggling with the onset of adulthood. It was about nothing. And from that nothing came the realization that you could make TV shows, 
Seinfeld, of course, but also The Office, Entourage, and movies, Swingers, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, anything by Judd Apatow that's centered on male bonding and male banter. Diner Scott wrote, change the way men interact. It also helped make stars of Kevin Bacon, Mickey Rourke, Paul Reiser, and Ellen Barkin. What does this have to do with sports? Well, everything in the sense that sports are at the core of some male lives and at the core of the film. One of Diner's plot lines centers on virginal Eddie's pending marriage to the never-seen Elise, which hinges on Elise's ability to pass a test of Baltimore Colts trivia. The football test was 140 questions, multiple choice, true or false, short answer. Six appear in the film in a scene in Eddie's parents' knotty pine basement where the guys listen as Eddie, played by Steve Gutenberg, quizzes Elise behind a closed door. The questions are tough, but they weren't in the original script, which was sent over to the Colts offices in 1981 with a request to look them over. The request wound up on the desk of then-assistant general manager Ernie Accorsi. Accorsi told the Baltimore Sun in 2002 that the original questions were far too easy, so he rewrote them. Instead of asking, for instance, what the team's colors were, which anyone in Baltimore would have known, he had Eddie ask Elise this. Last question. The Colts had a team here, lost the franchise, then got one from Dallas. What were the colors of the original Colt team? Ooh, ball buster. The original colors? Also my question. Green and gray. Right. Tough question. She pulls it right out of the bag. Have to say, very impressive get by Elise there. Of course, he said that the toughest question that he wrote was a trick one. Was George Shaw first round draft choice? Two, five, seven. First round draft nine, choice? Two, Wrong. Wrong. 14. He was a bonus pick. 17. Shaw was, in fact, the first pick in 1955, but it was considered a bonus pick. From 1947 to 1958, the NFL selected a team by lottery to get the first pick of the draft. The team could only get it once. The Colts picked Shaw and then took Alan Amici two picks later. Amici was, of course, the famous answer to a very controversial question on the diner test, which caused Elise to fall two points short of passing, which led Eddie to emerge from the room and announce the marriage is off. Of course, he said that he wrote five of the six questions and that the sixth one turned out to be wrong. Eddie asks, the Colts signed him, a Heisman Trophy winner who decided to play in Canada. Now, however, he plays for the team. What's his name? The answer was Billy Vessels, but Vessels wasn't on the team in 1959, the year in which the film was set. That was a rare misstep. The diner producers had the Colts band director supply period memorabilia and review sets for historical accuracy, including presumably the decorations at Spoiler, Eddie and Elisa's wedding, which are in, as Paul Reiser's Modell says, Colts colors. Very tasteful. In his Vanity Fair piece, Scott reports that the plot in the original script culminated with the diner guys hanging from the goalposts after the Colts' 31-16 win over the Giants in the 1959 NFL Championship game at Memorial Stadium. But it was too expensive to rent a stadium, so the scene, the one actual plot point going to this game, the scene was scrapped. Scott writes that Levinson didn't mind, that it played into his hands, allowing his ambition to do the ordinary to take flight. Diner the Musical, with the football test, opened at the Signature Theater in Arlington, Virginia last month. Scott and I are going to see it in a couple weeks. Diner is your Stuart Scott. Yeah, yeah. Also, that story is incredibly self-serving, Nernie Corsi. He claims to have written all of the questions except, except the one, for that, the was one that was wrong. That yeah. is what he claims in that story. I should yeah. have called him. I didn't call him. Josh, what's your booyah? What is alternate history, Stefan? 
According to AlternateHistory.com, it is the exercise of looking at the past and asking, what if? What if some major historical event had gone differently and how could that have changed the world? Popular what-if questions, according to AlternateHistory.com, are, what if the Nazis had won the Second World War? And what if the South had won the U.S. Civil War? Those are not just popular what-if questions. Those seem to be the only what-if questions that anyone ever asks, if that anyone is an alternate history buff. Although, to be fair, I did find a thread on the site's discussion board on how the 80s might have been different if Don Henley's solo career had gone differently. Uh, But that is a topic for another podcast. Back on the subject at hand, the AlternateHistory.com discussion board has a bunch of sports threads, titles including American Sports in a Confederate Secession World, Confederacy Survives, Sports What If, Confederate Sports, Confederate Sports Culture, Post-Independence, Sports in a Nazis Win WW2 World, and German Football Under Nazi Germany. Let's skip the Nazis this time around. Instead, I will walk you through that first thread, American Sports in a Confederate Secession World. Baconheimer starts off by posting that in a generic North-South world, no major wars after the first one, the northern states will like American football and baseball, the southern states will like rugby and soccer due to their connection with England. Enigma Jones adds, soccer will gain popularity in the major population centers of the Confederate States of America, where foreign merchant influence will be heaviest. I imagine that New Orleans and Charleston would have very strong soccer traditions. Exciting. As Tinka lists his alternate history Confederate major leagues, there's Major League Cricket, a.k.a. Dixie Cricket, Major League Rugby, a.k.a. Southern Rugby Conference, a.k.a. Dixie Ball, Major League Soccer, MLS, nickname Southern Ground Ball. So in all possible timelines, MLS exists. That's very comforting to American soccer fans. You cannot get rid of Major League Soccer. Confederate League Baseball, CLB, uh, nickname Southern Battersmen or Dixie Bat and Mitt. And then there is the Southern Association for Automobile Racing, SAAR, which in this guy's world broke away from NASCAR in the early 1950s. Uh, Someone called the Blue-Eyed Infidel argues that stock car racing is at least somewhat contingent upon prohibition, which may be butterflied away. Might not be prohibition in uh, this alternate timeline. Why would it have to break away from NASCAR? NASCAR was in the South. Stefan, you clearly need to be posting on this thread. (laughs) Uh, Then Enigma Fatsis. D32123 writes... American football, though with different rules, would probably be the most popular sport in both countries. I could see each country having its own set of rules, but I could see them, depending on the relationship the two countries having with one another, forming some common league. Maybe instead of the AFC and NFC, we'd have the UFC and the CFC. Then Dialga comes in with a bit of a non sequitur, but one I like. I'd have baseball in the CFSA have its own idiosyncrasies, e.g. games can end in ties like they do in Japan. Don't know why, just a thought. Confusion emoji. Uh, (laughs) Cray History says, in a similar thread I made earlier in the year, baseball came to be called Townsball, and it became popular in the South either way. He then lists his teams in the CSA Townsball League, which include the Stonewall Diamondbacks. That's in the city of Arizona, by the way. There's a city named Stonewall. Florida Rustlers, Georgia Nobles, which are in Milledgeville. 
Suffice it to say, the thread features one guy who notes everyone has forgotten about horse racing. There's always that one guy. Someone else writes, I can see Olympic-style shooting becoming popular in a CSA victory timeline as a legacy of dueling. Just a thought. And yet another someone creates a confederacy uh, rugby union with two divisions and promotion and relegation and teams in Sonora and Chihuahua, which have been acquired from Mexico and renamed Jefferson and Davis, respectively. Uh, The poster, D32123. I said that Stefan should post in this thread. We have outed this guy as Stefan Fatsis, D32123. He writes, basketball would probably get butterflied away. I could see something like handball filling the void. Oh, shit. I got to go, guys. <laughs> Is there any mention of, oh, you know, race in these, these threads? I think actually in these alternate timelines, race gets butterflied away. Is that butterflied away <laughs> just the, the catch-all term for there are so many ignoring terms everything? There's so many terms in there that I didn't understand. It seemed kind of like Scientology. There's like OTA fi- five thetans and all this stuff. But yeah, butterflied away means that due to the butterfly effect, effect some yeah. small change, basketball doesn't exist. I, I kid about race. It, it really is not mentioned very much, if at all, though. Not, not important to sports in the, no. in the uh, Confederacy. No, in the slaveholding South. No. No. All right. We love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes at itunes.com slash slatepodcast. Leave us a comment and a rating, please. Become a fan on Facebook, facebook.com slash listen. Our producer, Mike Volo, our managing producer, Joel Meyer, the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.